Our gracious Father, we are supremely grateful for your love and mercy to each of us. Father, I thank you that over the last month we've had the privilege of celebrating Christmas and just what a wonderful time that's been. And I'm grateful, Lord, for the work that you've done in my life, for the work that you've done in our church, our church family, my own family. Uh, while 2023 has presented its challenges, you have been faithful. I'm so, so thankful, Lord, for who you are and all you do. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. So now the reason we do this the reason we begin every year uh, by looking ahead, well, actually, we technically, we end 2023, and then we'll begin 2024, and we've done it every year since I've been here. Um, in times past, we've spent a lot of time looking back on this Sunday, and then next Sunday, we'll look ahead. And we're not really going to do a lot of looking back today, uh, other than to say that God has been supremely faithful. Um, I don't know. You'll, you'll hear a little bit more about it at our annual meeting next year. Uh, but this is one of my favorite things to share with people. When the church hired me uh, three and a half years ago, uh, the church, uh, the elders and everybody, they told me, listen, we got about two years worth of money. That was three and a half years ago. And we ain't run out yet. And I'm grateful for the faithfulness of our congregation. But that, my brothers and sisters, that's the faithfulness of God. That's his grace and his mercy at work in us and through us. Um, when I first got here, what, what did we have? So my interview Sunday, there were 11 people in church, and that included my wife and I. <laughs> that, was, that was my interview. Now, we're not quite reflected because we're a little scattered right now. Um, but, and I say this all the time, if everybody showed up at the same time, we have about 40 now. And I'm not a big numbers guy. You, you know, I don't, I don't go around to the other pastors I meet and go, so. And, and the only, I'm going to say it this way because I've been asked it this way. How many are you running? Well, actually, they just sit there. They don't run a whole lot. I mean, you know, well, you know what I mean. Because then what happens, and you've heard this phrase before, then what happens is pastor counting. And pastor counting is different than normal counting. Because you can, you can look around any room and count the number of people there and get an exact number. And then the pastor will take that exact number and go, well, we had about 20 more than that. Right? Well, you know, 27 people in church. Well, we had about 40. No, we didn't. <laughs> but that's pastor counting. And I have seen it over and over and over again. And so I really try not to do it. Try. The operative word. But in my heart, there's a thousand people here. But I identify as the pastor of a megachurch. Mega awesome. Because what God has done here is no, nothing short of a miracle. Uh, this year, we have seen several people come to know Christ as Savior, which has been outstanding. Um, God, is, God is just good. He's so good. But... We can dwell on the past, good and bad, or we can look forward to what God wants to do. 
I'm going to try to break my habit of holding my coffee through half my sermons. That could be my New Year's resolution. It's okay to pick it up and take a drink, but I tend to do this, and then eventually I spill it. In Philippians, I told you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, but I'm going to read verse, chapter 1, verse 6, because it's my favorite verse in all of Scripture. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I love that verse. I, as you know, I have that verse tattooed on my arm because it is my life verse. He began a good work in you. He is going to complete that work. And when will that work be completed? Well, when he comes back or when he just comes back for you. But whatever the case, he who began a good work in you will complete it. And I believe that for my life, for my family, and I believe it for our church. Paul goes on in chapter 3, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears. Oops, did I skip a line? Hold on, I'm going back. Oh yeah, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. And their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved. And I just, I love this, right? We haven't gotten there yet. Does anybody think they've arrived, right? We haven't. So what do we do? We trust that God is not done with what he's begun. And we don't dwell on the past, but we move forward. And there's a line in that passage that I love, to lay hold of that for which he has laid hold of me. Why did God lay hold of you in Jesus Christ? There's a purpose. There's a reason. There's a plan. And our desire should be to lay hold of that for which he has laid hold of us. So now we go back to Psalm 85. We're really only going to look at one verse in Psalm 85, but I want to read the whole thing. Psalm 85, verse 1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. I love that phrase. Now, if you're anything like me, whenever you come along to that phrase, you either don't read it at all or you read it and move forward. But what it's meant to do is get us to pause on what it said. Right? We are meant to stop for a moment and think about what was written in the first two verses. 
that God was favorable to his land, restoring the fortunes of Jacob, forgiving the iniquity of their people, and covering all their sin. That is, that is four lines very much worth meditating on. Verse 3. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. What a beautiful phrase. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Now there's a lot in Psalm 85 that we could, we could talk about, we could study. Um, there's three R's right there in verses 4, 5, and 6, which would make a pretty three-point sermon to restore us, to revive us, and then to, oh, I lost it. Where's the third R? And so we can rejoice, right? Restore, revive, rejoice. Be pretty. We're not doing that today. But you can go home if you want and think about those three verses. Uh, today, and I borrowed, just, just so you know, I borrowed the main points from a gentleman by the name of R.A. Torrey. And the quote, we begin with a quote from him. It says, I have a theory that there is not a church, chapel, or mission on earth where you cannot have revival, provided there is a little nucleus of faithful people who will hold on to God until he comes down. Which is why I chose Psalm 85, because in verse 6, there is this prayer, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? The Hebrew word for revive there in verse 6 is kaya, and it means to give life, to quicken, to recover, to repair, to restore, and to be whole. I mean, and there, there's a lot in that, right? When we think of the word revive, we, we tend to think of maybe someone who passed out and woke up. That's They've revived, uh, which is part of the definition here. That means to quicken. Or to recover. But revive, what I want to glob onto, as it were, is that it means to give life or to restore and to make whole. It takes something that was alive, that somehow became not alive again, and restores life to it. It's absolutely beautiful. There's two cases in um, the lives of Elijah and Elisha. One was involving a widow who fed Elijah, and her son died, and God used Elijah to raise him from the dead. There was life, there was not life, there was life again. 
Then Elisha with the Shunammite woman. She had a son. He died. She went to him. He came back. We just studied this a couple weeks ago in 2 Kings. Right? He laid on the boy. So the boy started to warm up. He got up. He walked around the house. He did it again. And the kid sneezed seven times and was alive. Now, I don't believe anything is in the Bible by accident. But I can't tell you why he sneezed seven times or why the writer of 2 Kings, who I think was Jeremiah, decided to write that down for us. He sneezed seven times. Great. But it's there. There was no life. Or sorry, there was life. That life was gone, and that life came back. Now the reason I like that definition of this word is because I think we've lived that over the last three and a half years as a church. And I'm not saying that before I got here there was no life, right? That's <laughs> No. Nothing to do with me. But this church has a wonderful past. It's got a bad past in some areas too, but this church has a wonderful past. God has used New Song Christian Fellowship for a long time. And the enemy tried to stop that work. He tried to stop it several times in big, big ways. He's even tried to stop it, and I'm talking about before I got here, and then he tried to stop it with me. And that's another story for another time. But the enemy failed, because that's all he knows how to do. Right? He can poke, and he can prod, and he can be a jerk, and he can, he can oppress, and he can cause problems, but you ultimately know what he does what he does better, right? And he's the father of lies and he was a murderer from the beginning and, and, and Jesus, right? He's the accuser of the brethren, but we have an advocate in Jesus, our savior. We read all of these things, but you want to know what the enemy is really, really good at? Losing. That's all he can do ultimately is lose. So when we speak of revival, we speak of God bringing new life and restoration to his people so they can be whole. And we've seen him do that here at New Song. Now the three-point prescription for revival comes from R.A. Torrey. I borrowed the main points. There's a little quote from him at the beginning of each point. Uh, and the rest I prayed over and, and studied and hopefully came from the leading of the Holy Spirit. But while I believe... We have seen a measure of revival here. He who has begun a good work in us, he's not done yet. And I'm not saying that we should be dissatisfied with our numbers. I'm not saying we should be dissatisfied with our budget. I'm not saying anything of that sort. But what I am saying is that God has a work to do through us. He's been doing that. We've seen glimpses of it. But I think he wants to do more. When I was at Walmart in Montrose, uh, when we took our son back to the airport on Tuesday, and then my wife and I, we went and, and spent the afternoon uh, at, the, in the, at the Hot Springs in Uray. Oh, that was nice. Then we went out to a really nice dinner. Then we hit a deer on the way home. And our car is fine. Absolute miracle. Right? It has nothing to do with any of that. But um, absolute miracle, the deer was not okay, but the car was fine. Um, while we were at Walmart in Montrose on that day, I bought the original Superman movies. 
You guys remember the Christopher Reeve Superman movies? Gene Hackman is Lex Luthor, and uh, um, um, is it Margot Margot Kidder, uh, Lois Lane, and and all right, good old Superman, where they were hanging on wires and 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 all the fun stuff that they did to make those movies great. We watched a couple of them, and if you remember in the first one, Lex Luthor wanted to blow up the coasts so that he could some kind of land deal. Um, Superman had to go catch a nuclear missile, which he's Superman. That's not hard to do. But he was late on one of them, and the Hoover Dam broke. Now, this is, I have a point. I promise. I'm getting there. And this is the point. When the Hoover Dam, there's a big earthquake because the missile struck, the Hoover Dam started to break. What happened? Did it just crumble? No, there was a little crack here. And a little crack there, and then a little bit of water, and then a little bit more water, and then a little bit more water until the whole thing came down and there was a flood that threatened to destroy this model city that was built on like a Lego board. Right? Now, in 1978, or when I first saw it, when I was four or five, it was the greatest thing ever. Now I'm sitting there looking at the tiny little dolls that they have set up on the side of the hill and the tiny little houses that somebody worked really hard to build and paint. And then somebody's up there with like a gallon of water doing this. This is the point I'm making. I think over the last three and a half years, there's been cracks. And I think the water has started to flow. And when I talk about that, of course, I'm going to refer to John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. That he who believes in me, out of him will flow torrents of living water. And John gives us the commentary that he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. I think there's been cracks. I think that water is starting to pour out. But I think God wants to do so much more in us and through us. So that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we bring about revival? Well, first off, it's going to be a work of God. But he gives this prescription, and I think it's pretty fantastic. Number one, first, we have to be a community that is right with God. Ari Tori makes this uh, comment. Let a few Christians, there need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is the prime essential. If this is not done, the rest I am going to say will come to nothing. That is our A. Tory. So how do we get thoroughly right with God? First and foremost, we have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I know for most people in here, that is already taken care of. But if there is anybody who's not, listen carefully. Romans 10, 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, proclaimed not guilty before God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, right? He doesn't care where you're from. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love the simplicity of the gospel. 
What do you do? You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that you will be saved. You believe in Jesus. You believe in who he is and what he has done for us, which is to be born, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us to live a sinless life so he could be a lamb without spot or blemish, to die a substitutionary death, taking our place on the cross, and then to rise victoriously, conquering sin and death. So that when you believe in the heart, and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Isn't that awesome? It's absolutely awesome. So that's step one. You want to be thoroughly right with God, you got to get saved. you got to know Jesus as Savior. Number two, be in regular repentance for your sin. We only get saved once, and I praise God for that. But even as a Christian, we will sin, and we need to be regularly repenting for that sin. Romans 2, 3, and 4. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There, there has been throughout history this great desire to beat people with the Bible and try to scare them into repentance. But that's not what he does. Yes, we talk about the bad news. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. We talk about the bad news. Because the good news is just so much better when there's bad news. The reason we were having this discussion is we were talking about something we heard um, from a person who will remain nameless. It's nobody that we really know. But um, this, this quote-unquote preacher was telling people that Jesus died on the cross because of how good they were. Thank you. I appreciate the confused looks. He's like, you're just so good. And you're so lovable, and you're so wonderful, and you're so, that that's why Jesus died. No, it's not. If we were that good, then he wouldn't have to die. Why did he die? Because we're sinners who could not save themselves. But you can try to scare somebody into repentance. Or you can show them the goodness of God. And the goodness of God is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to deliver us from our sin. 1 John 7, 1 John 1, there's no 1 John 7. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Charles Spurgeon said that the Christian will be in continual repentance until his dying day. Because here's the reality. The more we know Jesus, the more we're going to realize we're sinners. And the more we're going to repent of that sin. And the beautiful thing about that is we don't repent of that sin so we can get saved. We're already saved. right? We do repent of our sin to get saved and come to know Christ as Savior. But we repent of that sin regularly so that we don't break fellowship and intimacy with God. 
Because our sin does cause problems in our lives. Am I the only one? I know you guys don't have any problems. Right? And I don't want to sin. I don't want to do things that dishonor God or hurt other people. It's the farthest thing from my heart, but I do. From time to time, we all do. And that was always the difference between Saul and David. We've talked about that many times. Saul sinned and became prideful and tried to justify himself. David sinned a whole lot worse than Saul. You go back and look at what Saul did. Yeah, Saul killed a lot of people. Um, But David, right? An adulterer and a murderer and a liar. And the difference between Saul and David wasn't whose sin was worse. It's that David always came back. He always came back in repentance. So in order to be thoroughly right with God, we have a relationship with Christ, we are in regular repentance, and we obey him. 1 John 2, 3-6, And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey his commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. Don't you just love the Bible? Right? If, if you go on, if you went, went somewhere and you go, listen, man, you, you say you're a Christian, but you're not obeying God. You're clearly a liar. Right? If you just said that to some, oh, how dare you judge me? What's wrong with you? Yeah, but we can read it from the Bible. And then it's not, I'm not saying it, it's him. If someone says, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. So what happens if you find yourself there? Well, you go back to point number two. You repent. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So to be thoroughly right with God, you know Christ as Savior, you're in regular repentance, and by the power of God's Spirit, you seek to obey his word. Number two, pray. Pray. That seems simple, doesn't it? R.A. Torrey writes, Let the community that is thoroughly right with God bind themselves together in prayer groups to pray for revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. How do we do this? Well, we can go back to our prayer practice and look at what we were taught there. Right, Talk to God, talk with God, listen to God, be with God. But in reality, there is no wrong way to pray. When we pray by ourselves or we pray in a group, as he suggests, which we're going to talk more about later, there is no wrong way to pray. It's one of the questions that I get very, very often. You, you know I'm a, a, an online missionary with Global Media Outreach, and I get emails from people all over the world who are seeking Christ or have questions about him, or who are new in the faith and don't know what to do next. And one of the questions I get so, so often, both there and in ministry in general, is I just, I don't know how to pray. Or, or you know, and, and it's okay. Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And what did he teach them? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I don't know if you noticed, I started in King James and ended in NIV. But still, it doesn't matter. 
right? And that is an awesome place to start. I love praying the Lord's Prayer. I use it often on my own. Um, and right, But there is no wrong way. I've had people say, well, I really like to go for a walk when I pray. Great, go for a walk. Oh, I really like to get on my knees. Good for you. I couldn't get back up. Right? Or I, I, you know, I like to, when I lay in bed in the morning, before I get out of bed, that's when I pray. Okay. Or I pray in the shower. You guys know this about me. I pray in the shower a lot. Right? It doesn't matter how. It's that you pray. And that you don't stop. Now, 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Right? What do we do? Pray. Pray for people. Ask God. Intercede. Give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, three simple words, pray without ceasing. Now, there are some people who have taken this command very seriously. And they live a monastic lifestyle, and all they do is pray, which is awesome. Many of us can't do that. We can, however, spend our lives in an attitude of prayer. We can spend our lives seeking to be constantly aware of the presence of God and praying over anything and everything. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, I'm going to give you a little tidbit to keep in the back of your mind. As you read the Gospels, look for instances, because there's more than one, where Jesus gives us a how much more lesson. Right? If this is true, how much more is this true? Right? If you, as a father, aren't going to tell your kid to eat a rock, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things? Right? It's this comparison. He does the same thing with the parable of the just judge, right? Or the unjust judge, right? He gave her justice. How much more will your father give you justice? The tense in Greek for ask, seek, and knock is to keep asking, to keep seeking, and to keep knocking. Now, I am about, I'm not going to commit plagiarism. I am, however, going to share copyrighted material on the internet and in my recording, but I give full props. When we went through the prayer practice, this book was the suggested reading, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools by Tyler Staten. So what I'm going to share with you, Tyler Staten wrote. It's not me, but it's so good. And I thought, you know what, I'll summarize it in my notes. And I thought, well, that's dumb. They already wrote it here. I'll just share it from here. And it's a story, it's the story of... Hernhut. Hernhut. And a man, this may be one of the greatest names I've ever come across, Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Good thing they didn't have business cards back then. Because Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf would have had a very difficult time. All right, so I'm going to share, um, I'm going to read just a couple paragraphs from the book. 
just to give you an idea. So, Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, he was a 20-something-year-old German, and he had received a sizable inheritance, and then he turned his family property into a refugee camp in 1722. They gave the small Morovian village the name Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. It was to become the birthplace of a great revival and the modern missions movement. It all began with a refugee village committing to 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week prayer, which lasted for 100 years and led to the Moravian revival. The really interesting bit of the story, though, is not the revival stories, but the revival origins. If you read the direct accounts from those refugees, they don't make such a big deal about the prayer movement. The story they tell is about the unlikely night on which the prayer movement started. Zinzendorf welcomed a group of refugees into the family of God and then gave them his radical vision, an early church kind of community alive again here and now, the kind of community that intended to become, they intended to become required daily countercultural decisions to prioritize the other, and that's fundamentally against human nature. Now, five years in, there was widespread disillusionment, a whole lot of pain, a pervasive sense of disappointment, Cynicism, blame, and plenty of settling for something just okay, but far less than what they had envisioned together. On August 13, 1727, they gathered for another ordinary church meeting. Zinzendorf preached a powerful sermon on the cross, and as he did, the Holy Spirit fell in such an overwhelming way that in that very moment, in that very meeting room, they began to confess their wrongs and forgive one another. No buts, no explanations, no holding back, just naming the wrongs, and wiping the slate clean. The spirit fell so heavily that they stayed for hours in confession and actually stumbled out of the church service dizzy with supernatural experience. Two weeks after that night, they decided to start a prayer meeting. That prayer meeting lasted 100 years. So how did the Moravian revival happen? Most historians say prayer. The whole thing was fueled by prayer. And there's a lot of truth to that, but according to the 48 refugees in the room, the eyewitnesses who lived and experienced it, they would have said, no, 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 100 years of prayer was just the overflow of one night of unfiltered healing confession. Revival didn't happen because everyone agreed it was a good idea. It happened because everyone stripped off their fig leaves in front of one another. That is, don't do that. The point was that they became vulnerable with one another. Now, this is where it finishes up later in the book. Returning to the revival in Hernhut, we see a real-life picture of rebellious fidelity to Jesus through prayer. The unlikely spark of the revival occurred when Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf welcomed those 48 refugees chopping up the family property into the village of Hernhut. They dreamed of recapturing the radical potency of the early church, a few years in, disillusioned, they came to the sober realization that their shared agreement and collective willpower weren't enough. Their vision was clean and inspiring off the eloquent lips of their leader, but messy and ordinary in the context of relationship with one another. Confronted by their own weaknesses, they finally started to pray like monks. Forty-eight refugees committed to a disciplined rhythm of daily prayer. Just five years into that commitment, a refugee village of 32 homes had inadvertently launched the greatest missions movement in world history. The prayer meeting that started with those refugees 
went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days for 100 years. A century of unceasing prayer. The Moravian revival was a 100-year prayer meeting that transformed the tiny village of Hernhut into the missional base of the 18th century and the catalyst of the modern missions movement. If you haven't read this book, I highly recommend you read it. They prayed. So first, a community that was thoroughly right with God. Second, a community of prayer. Third, be willing to go. The community that is thoroughly right with God and is engaged in constant prayer must then put themselves at the disposal of God for him to use them as he sees fit in the winning of others to Christ. R.A. Tori. We all know the Great Commission that Jesus gave to us in the Gospels. Whether it's Matthew 28 where we're told to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what Jesus taught us, or John 20, 21, when Jesus said to his disciples, which includes us, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are commanded to go. But where and how we go is up to God. So we have to be willing and available. How do we make ourselves willing and available? Three quick points and then we'll close. <laughs> quick. It's the last sermon of the year, folks. We're going to be like Paul. We're going all the way till midnight. Not stop until someone falls out a window. All right, I won't do that to you. Number the first one, be present with God. Isaiah 6, 8. We're very familiar with this passage, but Isaiah 6, 8 says, I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, he says, I said, here I am. Or some translations flip the I and the M and they say, here am I, send me. I love this Hebrew word. So much so that I added it to my arm. The Hebrew word is Hineani. And what it means is that you are present in the moment with God. We are present in that moment. We know that he is present in that moment. We are willing to be vulnerable and open then to the movement of God's spirit in our lives. That's exactly what we see with Isaiah. Here am I, Hineani. I am here in this moment with you. I know you're here in this moment with me. This is who I am. Do whatever you want. Hineani. That's what the word means. It boils down to abiding in Christ. Now, I'm not going to turn to John 15 right now, but I'll give you homework. Read John 15, and then go read John's first epistle, 1 John, five little chapters. Right, so your, your homework is six chapters. I don't care if you do it today or all week or however you do it, but I just challenge you to read it and to think about abiding in Christ. It's going to be a big part of next week's message. Right, there's a little preview. Um, but next week, that's why I'm not going to talk about it now, and we're not going to turn there now. Next week, we're going to talk about it. You read those chapters, you'll be a little better prepared. But first, be present with God. Second, serve the Lord with genuine love. 
Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Serve the Lord with genuine love. The word for genuine is anapokritos. And it means with sincerity or without wax, without hypocrisy, unfeigned. The more we are with God in our lives, the more his love will become our love to share with others. I'm going to say that again. The more we are with God in our lives, the more his love will become our love to share with others. To love genuinely. Right? I don't love you because I have to. I don't love you just because the Bible tells me to. The Bible does tell me to. But I love you because I actually love you. I love you not because I'm getting paid to. I would love you even if I didn't get paid. I would. Most of you. No, I'm joking. I love all you. <laughs> you know who you are. No, I'm joking. Because that's what we're called to. Because that's how God loves us. That's why Jesus died on the cross, going back to the beauty that is the gospel. He loves you, not, not because you've earned it, not because you're better looking, right? If, if we only went to heaven based on how we looked, I would be in so much trouble. Right? He doesn't love you because you're smarter or because you're more talented. or He just loves you. And he loves you exactly where you're at. He loves you exactly for who you are, flaws and all. It's part of the reason I wrote that one song that we did this morning, The Nearness of God is My Good. You are the God who sees me, and the nearness of God is my good. And you are here, you are here, and you see me where I am. Because we don't, we don't have to come with God to God pretending. We don't have to come to God trying to be something we're not. And we don't have to come here as brothers and sisters in Christ and pretend to be something we're not. We can just be who we are. And on some days, that's going to be really good. And on some days, not, not so much. Because we're human beings. But we love each other anyway. And that is the beauty of the love of God. It has no conditions. He just loves us. The third one, do whatever you do for the Lord and his glory. Right? If we're going to be willing to go, we're going to be present with him, we're going to have genuine love, and then we're going to do whatever we do for the Lord and his glory. Colossians 3.17, and then verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that you are serving, and that the master you are serving, sorry, is Christ. 
1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if you're preparing a sermon, do it for the glory of God. If you're mowing a lawn, do it for the glory of God. If you're cleaning a house or helping a customer or talking to your neighbor or going to Walmart, you do it for the glory of God. Now, I know, <clears throat> personally, I think it's probably easier to clean a toilet for the glory of God than to go to Walmart for the glory of God. Um, but still, whatever you do, because it's not about vocation. It's not even about what you are currently occupied with. It's the heart behind it. Why are you doing it? Are you doing it for attention? Are you doing it so other people see how great you are? Or are you doing it for him? If you do it for him, then he's going to take care of the rest. Let's close. Two quotes. First, from R.A. Torrey. That is all. This is sure to bring revival to any church or community. I have given this prescription around the world. It has been taken by many churches and many communities, and in no instance has it ever failed, and it cannot fail. That's a bold statement. Then someone asked Billy Sunday. You guys remember Billy Sunday, an evangelist? And his, they asked him this question, do revivals last? And he said, no, neither do baths. But it's good to have one of those occasionally. I like that answer. We need revival, and we continually need revival. And you know, it might not last, but to see the work God can do through it is incredible. I have prayed for revival in our church and an awakening in our valley since before we moved here, since before I was even hired. We've seen hints of revival in our church. We've been blessed with seeing God bring people to salvation, seeing our church grow, and seeing God help people move into a place of service, discover their God-given gifts and calling. We have seen God's faithfulness as there have been attempts to ruin the work of God has done here, both from outside our church and unfortunately from within. But our wonderful God has taken care of us and taken care of those situations every single time. Next week, we will talk about our vision for 2024. Uh, it's going to build on our vision from 2023, the PDA. Um, but that's next week. As we move into the upcoming year, which is now uh, 12 hours and 33 minutes away, I would like for our church to commit to these three steps. Steps one and three are individual, right? I cannot get right with God for you, but I will gladly help you get right with God. You can't repent for me. Right? It doesn't work that way. But we can love and support and encourage one another. However, step two, we take together. And this is my challenge, and it's going to come back next week. And it's going to come back a lot because this is my challenge for everyone in our church to be willing to either create or be part of a prayer group. Now, this group could have two people in it or this group could have 10 people in it. I don't care. I don't care if, if you meet once a week or once a month as long as the group meets regularly. And pray for revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. 
And we can do that together. And so next year, which is going to be your quit, I'm going to ask people to be willing to host a group. We don't need that many. We're not a big church. But if we get two or three groups, we'll have enough for everybody to be part of one. Two things to close. To be thoroughly right with God, you have to know Jesus as Savior. If there's anyone listening who needs to know Jesus, there is no better day than today. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it so beautifully. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We have a new year starting tomorrow. What better way to start the new year than to be a new creation in Christ? So if there's anyone here, anyone with us online, or anyone who hears this recording, get in touch with us. Talk to me. Talk to somebody else. And know how much you are loved. And let the goodness of God bring you to salvation. And two, and you don't have to answer out loud, but it's very simple. Are you willing to commit to praying for revival in our church and awakening in our valley? Basically, decide now if you're going to be part of one of those groups or if you want to host one. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory and we thank you for your grace. As I think about Hernhut, the Lord's watch, and how you took a group of people, and not a group of people that were wealthy, they were refugees, not a group of people who were particularly well-educated or, or influential or whatever it might be. You just took a normal group of people. They became vulnerable before you and one another. And it sparked a movement that lasted a hundred years and brought many to salvation. Father, I know how much you love me. I know how much you love every person here. And I know how much you love the people in this valley. Many of whom want nothing to do with you. But the power of your spirit and the effectual fervent prayer of your people has, in many cases, changed the world. And I believe you'll do it again. So we ask for your help, for your guidance, and your grace. And I ask, Father, that we would do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.